Hi, and welcome to our sermon series on A Thinking Person's Guide to Faith. The topic for today is the love of God and the logic of hell. What does the Bible really say about hell, and do we have to believe in hell to call ourselves Christian? We'll look at that today. Our text is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would work through this message and through our lives to draw us to yourselves. Lord, we know that you are more anxious to save us than we are to be saved. So Lord, help us to make that turn towards you today that will invite us into your kingdom. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. We in the church love our scare tactics. We relish on the stories of hellfire. A lot of preachers don't feel like they've really preached unless they threatened you with eternal damnation. A lot of church members feel like it hasn't really been a sermon unless the preacher has threatened to roast them over the fires of hell. Many Christians seem convinced that the best we can do is scare people into heaven. So we try to threaten them into the kingdom. Uh, I remember preachers dangling people over the fires of hell, breathing threats in sermons that if they're found guilty of sins or if they die without confessing, that they will roast forever. Next month, churches will begin putting up hell houses or judgment houses as Halloween approaches. The intent behind those is to invite youth to come in and show them tragic scenes of death and to threaten them with the possibility of eternal judgment. Their hope is that those kids will become Christian, that they can scare them into heaven, that they can literally scare the hell out of them. Um, I'm not sure that's the best way to get it at inviting people to Christianity. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't doubt God's ability to use even our poorly conceived evangelistic techniques. Uh, I think that God can use almost anything that we will allow to reach us. But is scaring the hell out of people really the best we can do? Is the only good news that we have, you don't have to burn for eternity? Is that all we have? You believe in Jesus and God won't torture you? Is that the message, the best message that we have to offer? In fact, that message actually pushes a lot of people away. I was at a family Christmas one year when one of my relatives said to me that he refused to believe in a God who would condemn five billion people to hell. He was raised in the church. Uh, he was baptized as an infant. He was taught the ways of the faith, but he was walking away from the faith precisely because of the church's teaching about hell. Wouldn't believe in a God who would send five billion people to hell. He's not alone. I've actually heard that argument from a lot of people. They want to know, how could a God of love torture people forever? Uh, especially, how could a God of love torture people who might not have had the opportunity to hear the message? Or maybe the message was just poorly preached. And what about people who faithfully followed other peaceful religions? What about 
people who faithfully followed Judaism or Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism? Uh, is God torturing all of them because they were born in a place where they followed the wrong God? Those are questions that challenge a lot of people and, and cause them to question their faith in Christ. It's a stumbling block for many to enter into the church. Now, of course, if if the those stories of hell are 100% accurate, then we just have to live with the truth no matter how unpleasant it is. But before we agree with the stories that revival preachers might have scared us with, let's take a closer look. What does the Bible really say about hell? Well, the Old Testament, which is roughly three-fourths of the Bible, is completely silent on hell. Uh, hell, as we know it, is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It, it does mention Sheol about 66 times, I think. Uh, but Sheol in the Old Testament is just the place of the dead. It's the underworld. It's where you know we bury people in the ground. Sheol is where all dead people go, righteous and unrighteous alike. And really throughout the Old Testament, there is uh, there's very little distinction made between that. Judaism uh, itself is a religion about uh, how we live in this life. And so the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, really doesn't have the hell that we talk about in the New Testament. It's just Sheol. Um, now, by New Testament times, the Jewish ideas of the afterlife had evolved. We get a picture of that when Jesus tells the story of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In the story, there's this rich man that uh, has an abundance. He sits at his table and he feasts every day, but sitting at the gate to his property is a poor man named Lazarus. And Lazarus is there begging for just some of the extras that the rich man might have, but the rich man ignores him, steps over him as he comes and goes from his home. He has no room in his heart to care for this poor beggar that's right at his gate. And as Jesus tells the story, both the rich man and Lazarus die. And Lazarus, who has suffered in this world, is taken away to Abraham's bosom, as Jesus calls it. Or it's also referred to as paradise. So he's taken away to this part of Sheol, this compartment, a room in Sheol, where the righteous are cared for in Abraham's bosom. And there's comfort and there's, there's joy. Uh, the rich man in the parable dies and he goes away into a place of torment. Now, this place of torment is a, a dry, barren place, and the, the man is so parched, he's so thirsty in that barren place that he begs Abraham to send Lazarus with just a, a little bit of cool water that he might quench the thirst that he has. And so this compartment uh, is, is one for those who have been selfish, those who have failed to love God and failed to love others. And, and they're separated by a great chasm in the story. So Sheol, this place of the dead, this underworld in Jesus' parable, is divided into a place of pleasure or paradise and then a place of torment. One reserved for the faithful, the other reserved for those who failed to love. Now, Jesus uh, 11 times refers to this place of torment uh, as Gehenna. Gehenna is a word that is sometimes translated as hell, but it's actually a real place just outside the walls of Jerusalem, the Valley of Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna is a place where 
uh, human sacrifices, child sacrifices used to take place. And so the whole place was considered to be, uh, to be dirty. It was, uh, it, been, it had become vile because of the abominations that occurred there. Uh, and so by Jesus' day, and even to, the, even to today, Gehenna is a trash dump. The trash of the city is, is poured out there and it's lit on fire and, and fires burn to burn up the trash in Gehenna. And so this trash dump, this burning trash dump for Jesus becomes a metaphor for hell. He uses Gehenna to describe this place of torment. Uh, so Jesus describes the afterlife with these two compartments, one for those that love God and love others. The, for those that have been faithful in their love for God and others. The other is for those who are obsessed with themselves. Selfishness becomes its own hell. You see, God doesn't really send people to hell in this scenario. People choose hell for themselves. People who refuse to be in the presence of God, people who refuse God's love and grace and goodness and mercy, people who don't want that, God doesn't force it on them. And so they find themselves in this own, their their self-made hell of selfishness. In the New Testament, it's a place reserved for those who want no part of God. And so they end up there of their own doing. But it's not permanent in the Bible. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, it says that hell is not permanent. In fact, it says that hell is thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. So even Sheol, Hades, this place of the dead, even it is burned up in the final judgment. So, what do Christians believe about hell now? There are at least three plausible theories, at least three plausible theories that are all supported by Scripture. The church has never required a belief in hell or in the devil, for that matter. It's difficult to say from Scripture that any one of these three theories is ironclad. You can believe any one of them with scriptural backing. The first is called eternal conscious torment. This is the hell that many of us grew up with in revivals. This is the common threat that those preachers made against us, that God will punish people forever for their lack of faith, uh, that uh, they will be alive and conscious and they will know what's going on as they burn with weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. That interpretation can be supported from Scripture, but it's also the one that's the hardest for many people to believe. That's the hell that my relative rejected. It's the hell that made my relative reject God altogether. The second theory is annihilationism. Annihilationism uh, simply argues that the unfaithful cease to exist. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus calls God the one who is able to kill both the body and the soul. And so we've, we've grown up with this notion that all souls are immortal, that they're all going to live forever, but the, the New Testament clearly holds out the possibility that souls can die. And annihilationism would teach that the souls of the unfaithful, of those who refuse to accept God's goodness and grace, those who refuse to love God and others, that at some point they simply cease to exist. Some would argue that it's at the point of physical death, that when we die in this world, that the soul of the unfaithful would die at that point. Uh, others would argue that, that their souls would go into this 
place of torment, that's Gehenna, uh, but, at later, but later would be destroyed when Gehenna itself is destroyed. The third theory that's common is Christian universalism. Now, I want to be careful there. That's not to be confused with universalist universalism that just says everybody automatically goes to heaven. Uh, now, in Christian universalism, which has been around for almost the entire history of the church, it's the claim that those who are unfaithful in this life will get the opportunity to still be saved. In 1 Corinthians 3.15, Paul claims that some will be saved, but only as through fire. It leaves open this curiosity, maybe, that perhaps uh, in Gehenna even, people have the opportunity to respond to the offer of grace and yet still be saved. Since the time of the early church, people have wondered about that. In fact, in our creed today, we said that we believe that Jesus descended to the dead. There are many who believe that in that three-day period between uh, between cross and resurrection, during that time period when Jesus was, was with the dead, that he was giving opportunity for those in Gehenna, those in the torture part of hell or of Sheol, for them to actually believe and to be redeemed. You can make fairly solid cases for or against any of these three theories. But I wanted you to say that the, the notion that that many of us grew up with is not necessarily ironclad. In fact, most of our ideas about hell come from Dante's Inferno, not from Scripture. But you know what's better than our, uh, our understanding of hell? It's better to not have to worry about it. The good news is that regardless of which of these three or something else is true, we don't, we don't have to worry about any of it. In our, in our text for today, Peter reminds us that it's not God's desire that any should perish. God is more ready to save us than we are to be saved. Uh, that news is so much better than threats. You know, God wants to be our friend. God wants to be a loving parent to us. God is the lover of our souls. God wants to offer us peace and love and joy and fulfillment. That's the good news. And it begins in this life. As soon as we turn towards Christ, that life can begin in the here and now. There's so much positive reason to believe in God beyond just the threat of eternal damnation. God is anxious. He's ready to save. I'm always reminded of the thief on the cross. Now, this is a violent criminal that's dying a brutal death next to Jesus while Jesus is dying. This violent criminal in his final breaths on earth turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, notice he doesn't confess his sins. He doesn't ask Jesus into his heart. He, uh, he doesn't repent. He doesn't have time to change the way he's living. He simply makes a, a request. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's enough for Jesus. God is so ready to save us that when we just give him a little bit, then he responds. Jesus answers, surely today you will be with me in paradise. As soon as we turn our lives towards Christ, he's ready to save. You see, Christianity is not so much about saving us from punishment as it is about being saved to this life of love 
and peace and joy. Now, maybe you're listening today and, and you you don't know about hell. Maybe you still don't know. Maybe I've not cleared that up for you at all, and that's okay. But maybe you're ready to say, I'd like to turn towards Jesus. I believe that if I just make that one step towards God, that God will run to me and embrace me. I pray that you'll do that today. I pray that you'll take that one small step of faith to say yes to Jesus because that yes will be enough. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, none of us can save ourselves. We are all guilty. We're all deserving of punishment. We've all failed to love you and we failed to love others as we should have. And yet you came to offer us a way back. Uh, through the cross, you accepted the punishment for our sins. You paid the price of our evil and you invite us into your kingdom. You invite us to a life of love and joy and peace in this world and the next. Lord, right now, we want to say yes. Yes to your offer of grace. Yes to being your child. Yes to being in your family. Lord, receive us into your kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen.